Hello and welcome to Arena Craft, a podcast dedicated to Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna. I am your host. Thank you for joining us again for another week. This week, we're going to announce the winner of the drawing. So that's exciting. So why don't we just get that out of the way right here? So the winner of this month's $20 drawing is, drumroll please, Twitter user Josh. This is at S-A-N-X-M-T-G. So thank you for following Josh. Send me a message on Twitter or just via any of the usual channels and we will figure out how to get that prize to you. Thanks very much. So these are people who've followed on Twitter, joined our Discord, followed on YouTube, Facebook page, Twitch, or left comments on iTunes. So any of that stuff is very appreciated. So congratulations, Josh. Stoked to be hooking you up with a prize. Drawing starts again this month, so didn't make it last month? Just try again. And if you're already there, then you're already in the drawing. So you can just chill and and wait for the good stuff to come. So thank you to everyone who participated in that. There have been exciting times in Magic, lots of discussion about Ikoria, Lots of discussion about companions, lots of controversy going around. And I actually have an exciting announcement for you today as well. So there have been developments on this show. A while back, I had said that, you know, I really loved having guests on this podcast, but my ideal configuration was actually to find a co-host. And the way that I approached this was I was just like, I'm just going to start making this show. I'm going to invite guests on. Hopefully, at some point, I'll stumble upon the Bonnie to my Clyde, the Redding to my Otis, as it were. And I am pleased to announce that that has actually occurred. And so today, I'm excited to announce that the official co-host of the ArenaCraft podcast moving forward is Covert Go Blue. He's actually here on the line waiting to talk to you today. How are you doing, Kobaga Blue? I thought I wasn't coming back. I thought because of that epic intro, it was impossible. I, I'm, I, I'm amazed to be here, and I am glad that the Arena Craft podcast has given me this opportunity to serve as your companion through this <laughs> standard metagame. So I actually had to consult the board of directors. We analyzed the numbers, we reviewed a few things, we talked with our lawyers and whatever, and we decided that it would overall be an advantageous move to have you on the show. So, you know, I'm glad to report that the shareholders, the board of directors, everyone approves of this move. This is typical corporate speak, um, viewers out there, if you hear this, it's actually a hostile takeover. I've been (laughs) taken from my home, I've been locked in a room, and I only have a microphone yeah, a, a microphone and a PC with Arena up all the time. It's not, it's not a bad life. Now that, now, now that you think about it, it's exactly like my uh, office at home. So it's a, it's a good time. Yeah, minus the options. <laughs> <laughs> 
the format of this show has historically been an interview show, and I have loved that. I've loved all of the guests that have been on this show. We will continue to have guests on the show, but we're going to be transitioning to a bit more of like a weekly episodic format. Um, I've had a number of ideas for cool segments to do, things that we repeat every week. And CGB is like the man of ideas. That's content, baby. Let's do it for the podcast. They don't even know. They don't even know what they're going to get right now. The listener is saying, this is, who is this? What is this? You will see. You're going to love it. You're going to absolutely love it. Dude, y'all, you have no idea. You have no inkling of the amount of content which is lined up for your waiting ears. I'm a little worried about it, to be honest. I'm a little worried about it, but I'm mostly excited about it. So yeah, we're, we're going to just be, uh, we're going to be trying stuff out, basically. We're going to be throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what sticks, seeing what spaghetti you guys like to have stuck to your particular wall. Let us know. After we record these episodes, just let us know what you're liking, what you want, what you're excited about. Tell us the stuff that you want that you didn't know that you want. So we, we want to know that too. This is, a, this is a known unknown kind of a thing. And I saw the ArenaCraft Discord has a section specifically for feedback and suggestions and fill it up. Indeed. Just crank them on in there. Uh, we want this show to be exciting to you. So yeah, we are paying attention. Let's just jump into it, man. We've been talking about some different stuff that we wanted to discuss here on the show. And I think the first thing, that, a place that it makes sense for us to start is with some news in the community. So there was a fairly big announcement or series of announcements this past week by Wizards. What are some of the things that are coming down the pike? So for Arena, for me, um, the historic news that we're getting another historic anthology next month is that's pretty exciting. Uh, I am a person who any cards that get added to a format is good for me. I wish I, I like the way that Magic does it. Like every three months we get a set. But these mini sets of like 20 cards but they have the potential to be highly impactful cards to shake a metagame kind of in mid-season, I'm really into it. So when they announced that Historic Anthology 3 is coming out on May 21st with the May update, uh, I'm pretty excited about that. So that's the news. It will have 27 cards. That Ooh. is up two cards from last time. Ooh, I know. And they actually in a stunning fashion, revealed two of them. Oh, um, and just to be clear, like they have made a spoiler season for Historic Anthology, something they've never done before either. In the past, it was like, here is a slide. It is in kind of tiny, low resolution that you can retweet on Twitter, and you can squint and kind of see what the cards are. And this time, it's big reveals. We get an actual spoiler season for the Historic Anthology, which to me, shows a little bit more love for the historic format on Arena. What do you think of that? Yeah, I am super excited about this. I think that there are a surprising number of like stealth historic players on Arena. I think that if you were to look at the number of people who play historic, you would be pleasantly surprised. The lost children, the lost, <laughs> the lost, the lost men and women of historic. We're bringing them home. We're shepherding them through the valley back to the light. 
I think that this is going to hit for a lot of people. You were commenting on this. I was commenting on this, that there was a surprisingly positive response from the community to this announcement. I was seeing Reddit was blowing up, Twitter was blowing up. People are really excited about this. So yeah, so that they're basically going to have like an ongoing ranked queue for Historic. And it sounds like they're just throwing a lot more support behind it. And I agree. I love this format of like periodically tossing in 20 cards, especially 20 juicy cards from Magic's history that they think would make the particular format more spicy and more fun. I think that's a super exciting way to go about it because it it leaves open room for speculation about what it's going to be. People who've been playing the game for a long time get to revisit these old favorites that were awesome back in whatever format they played them in. New people to the game get to play with these epic old cards, which still have a lot of play in them. And I also just think that it's exciting to look at format staples like Pack Rat or like various versions of Thalia or whatever, and just see how they can plug into a different format with different restrictions and and different cards that are available so i think all of that is really really cool and it just adds to the amount of different fun stuff to do on arena which obviously is the end goal so they announced two excellent cards both of which i was really happy to see the first one is phyrexian obliterator now have you played with this card before cgb I never got to play with it in standard. It was during a period of time where I was not involved with the game. But this shows I stopped kind of playing social magic quite a while ago when I moved to the middle of nowhere in a very rural area. And before Arena came along, my engagement with Magic the Gathering that kept me going was Duels of the Planeswalkers. And one of the Duels of the Planeswalkers games on Xbox had this card. (laughs) And my God, did I learn to love this card because I hate mono red decks. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So much. I, I, oh my gosh, that's my nemesis. It's my arena nemesis is the mono red deck. So Phyrexian Obliterator, do you want to tell them what it does? Do you want to tell the people? I will lay down the hot knowledge. All right. So Phyrexian Obliterator, the first thing you're going to notice about this card is the upper right-hand corner. It has a nice little row of four black skulls next to each other, which basically means if you're not running a mono black deck, you're probably just not running this card. Even with a Lotus Field, you're going to need an extra swamp to cast this thing. So it's basically a mono black shoe-in. The next thing you'll notice about this card is that it's a 5-5, so it's a decently statted creature. And the final thing about this card is whenever it takes damage, the opponent who inflicted that damage has to sacrifice that many permanents. That many permanents. Not a permanent, as you would expect with this templating. If you... if for example, a Star of Extinction is cast. Somebody is sacrificing 20 permanents. <laughs> That's a fun little interaction. I'd love to see that one go off. Let's discuss how this might go down, all right? Let's say you're playing a mono red deck, and let's say you're, you've been unlucky enough to land up on the draw, right? So on turn four, your opponent lands a Phyrexian Obliterator. On your turn four... You play a mountain, and let's say you've been lucky enough to make all of your land drops. So you have four mountains in play, 
and you're looking down at your little board of you got three creatures let's say lined up and and ready to go you've got this ember cleave in your hand maybe you've got a bone crusher giant maybe you've got a rimrock knight right and you're you're just uh-huh. stacked okay yes so like let's say you d- you know you you swing in you slam down that ember cleave wait you're suggesting that the sword is lit uh, <laughs> well well after you swing in you have to look in your hand to see if that little sword is is lit up mm-hmm. and assuming it is which happens as we know like a good what 50 60% of the time depending on whether the rng gods are favoring you in that particular moment uh-huh always always <laughs> as it happens right so if let's say you go ahead and you slam that sword down and you crash into that Phyrexian Obliterator for four damage. Now this is now we're talking. This is the first strike damage here. There's <laughs> some so fun great. things will occur before your combat step completes. So you're going to be looking down at those four mountains, and you're going to be looking down at your three creatures, and you will have to, in that moment, before the damage has even hit your opponent's face, you will have to decide which four permanents are not going to see the light of day on your next untap step. Let's assume also that they're not smart enough to pick the Embercleave. <laughs> so, yeah, so if they're not smart enough to pick the Embercleave, another four damage will happen shortly thereafter. And my friends, what this is probably going to mean is that your opponent, uh, you know, I actually don't even know how this damage stacks in Arena. Will your opponent actually end up taking any damage whatsoever? It depends on if there are enough permanents to sacrifice. If they sacrifice the right permanents a little, might be the answer, but the end of this is the end of this is just beautiful. It's bringing a tear to my eye. They basically, wipe they board wiped themselves, lands, creatures, Everything. artifacts, all of it. Oh right. my god! Right. So this is this is what happens, my friends. It's unreal. This card is just unreal. So yeah, Phyrexian Obliterator is going to be a tough card for any deck that deals damage as a way of getting creatures out of the way. It's just not going to work out. This card really changes meta games. It really makes aggro feel different. It makes even like mid-range kind of creaturey matchups feel different. This is a really hard creature for any non-control deck to deal with. So that's really going to shake things up. And it's also, it's just like a nice shoe-in for mono black decks in general so we're probably going to start seeing a little bit more gary in the historic format uh you know who knows we might start seeing some more of this uh, mono black lantern that alian trazi was kind of famous for popularizing how much gray merchant damage is one obliterator worth yeah so that's going to be for just on its own and uh yeah i i, I mean i i can't even imagine like if you curve your one drop through your gary like, let's say you get Ayara down. Let's say you get your, the, the Exile dude. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, on the turn that you resolve your Gary, let's see, that's six, ten, that's 12. You'll be draining for 12, I believe, if you, if you mm. curve out properly. Mm. I like it. I, I like it. And you'll have your Obliterator ready to swing in for five, too. So, yeah, I think that's pretty sweet. Now, the other card, though, here's the thing. The other card that they revealed is somehow going to manage to be even more epic than the Obliterator. So why don't you tell us about the other card that was revealed? The other card that was revealed to be in Historic Anthology 3 coming on May 21st to MTG Arena is none other than 
Daddy himself, Ulamog, the Ceaseless Hunger, the 10-mana, 10-10 legendary Mythic Eldrazi with Indestructible. And when you cast this spell, exile two target permanents. Whenever Ulamog, the Ceaseless Hunger, attacks, defending player exiles the top 20 cards of their library. I think that this guy can eat a lot of burgers. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> eat a lot of burgers. Oh my goodness, yes. You don't, you don't want to invite Ulamog to your buffet, you know what I'm saying? He just eats your deck. I mean, yeah, Ulamog who eats the deck, right? I mean, Ulamog is this, this guy's classic. He actually, he didn't rotate out of standard that long ago. So for anyone who's been playing over the last couple of years, you will actually probably remember Ulamog in standard. You might even remember the joy, which was people resolving Ulamog off of the Marvel, Etherworks Marvel. Yep. That might be here soon. Well, that's the thing, right? People have been speculating. So I would love to see this actually, because anyone who's been playing Arena since the beta came out will remember that Kaladesh was actually available on Arena in the early stages. So do you think that we're going to see a return to, at the very least, Kaladesh, if not the Etherworks Marvel? Yes, but probably not quite this year. Okay. Uh, because okay. they're not going to slide the Marvel into an anthology because it's an energy card. The whole anthology would have to be energy-based, right? Yeah, that's a good point. There is Amonkhet Remasters is something that they've announced is coming to Arena. Looking at their timelines, it looks like that's an August-September release. Um, so maybe by August-September next year they get to Kaladesh. We'll see. And it at that point, do they even want Aetherworks Marvel in their format? I hope so. It's a fun card. Maybe it will be friendlier on Arena than it was in paper. But uh, yeah, I think those two will be re reunited. Is there any way to... Is there any way to cast this, though, right now? Do we have tricks for this card in, in Historic? So the, the first one that came to my mind was Titan's Nest. That is a thing. Because this might actually be a reason to start running that card. Because your Fires of Invention doesn't do it. And unless you're running some shenanigans like Vivian 3, your Wilderness Reclamation is not going to help you cast this. So yeah, actually getting, so outside of just being like a top end in some kind of naughty Simic ramp deck, which, you know, they exist or off of your Nissa, right? I'm sure that someone's going to try to just slam Ulamog into a Nissa deck and you can probably get there. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is Nissa who shakes the world with enough forests, you just untap with your Nissa and you got it, right? Totally. But see, this is the thing. This is why I think Titan's Nest is so exciting, because I, I think the earliest way to get Ulamog down is to do some aggressive self-milling and slam a Titan's Nest, and then the next turn, just exile your entire graveyard and slam an Ulamog. Sure. We have Stitcher's Supplier. So yeah. we can fill the graveyard much more aggressively than normal. There's some new graveyard cards, whether they're, you know, Binding of the Titans, Glowspore Shaman, Skull Prophet. So sure, yeah, I can see it. That's my first hot take on it. Um, but yeah, outside of that, it probably would be some kind of mono green, like some kind of Nissa Tron variant. Yep. But there are enough forests now with the Triomes, because those are forests as mm. well, so they double off Nissa mana that you can play other colors. That's actually a really, really good point, right? Because between your... Sh you have the Shocklands, and then you have the 
many, many triomes. So yeah, you could actually, you could get to a point where you are able to play two or even three colors and your entire mana base is forest, which is kind of terrifying when you think about it. What if you don't want the cast trigger? We can, I mean, you can, there's a lot of things actually, right? There's a Luca minus to Mm, just pull this out of the deck with a token. Perforos doesn't do it. It has to be a red card. Gyruda. Gyruda can do it. Ooh, Gyruda. There you go. Yep, yep. Gyruda's a good one. Yep, Golos Activation will get it to you. Now, unfortunately, the the Saltai Ultimatum will not get it for you because they have to be colored cards, so that's kind of a shame. That is a shame. But I was also thinking Ugin, the, the Ugin 6 from War of the Spark, doesn't that make your colorless spells cheaper as well? Yeah, two less. Yeah, so, two less. so eight mana Ulamog. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, Ulamog is a lot tastier at eight mana than it is at ten. So I think we're going to see as many ways as people can come up with to cheat out Ulamog. We're going to see it because it really is just the biggest, baddest creature to resolve. I mean, it's in pretty much any format that Ulamog is legal, it's definitely in consideration as one of the top end fatties that you go searching for when you're trying to cheat big things into play. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see this one. Personally, I never got tired of seeing Ulamog's resolve. I think the Historic is going to be super awesome, and this might actually be like the season that I really dive into it for the first time. So is there any other hot news that we have before we move on to talking about Standard? It's a little bit outside of Arena, but they are sunsetting DCI um, numbers. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which has been a pretty hot topic to people who have played for a long time. I am a I am a human with a five digit DCI number. Some people have been very like sad about that, especially the ones with kind of the status symbol DCI numbers from long, long, long ago. To me, it's not. I I just don't play enough paper magic, and I'm not that deep into the competitive scene anymore. That doesn't hurt, and I don't think it actually means they're getting rid of the data. The suggestion that I heard is that it's about storing personal data and that that's a liability for a company in 2020 with data breaches and things like that going on. So if that's the reason they're taking it down, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, it doesn't upset me. Does Is it ruffling any feathers on your end? You know, I haven't really been plugged into OP and Magic in the past. I don't even remember my DCI number. So for me personally, it's not that big of a deal. I do think, though, it's just a massive part of the history of the game. And I know Saffron Olive has specifically pointed out a lot that one of Magic's main competitive advantages over other card games in the space, such as Hearthstone or, you know, Eternal or any of these other ones, is just its long history. And the fact that there is there are career Magic players, which, you know, now you start, you see that in Hearthstone, but... Very few other games can really boast that in that long history. And so I think that it it is something that Wizards should be careful about. I think they should just proceed with caution. I, I don't know. I don't know if I really buy the data safety thing. Like, how how sensitive is match data, right? Like, if, if someone busts into that system and breaches it, they're going to find data that was freely available on the internet already right like so i'm not really sure what the worry is there addresses phone numbers email addresses things like that perhaps so couldn't they just wipe those from the system and leave the data 
Good question. I don't know the answer. Yeah, it's just I don't know. It's because because here's the thing. I think that I think that it's fine to deprecate the system. You know, I think stopping DCI numbers usage going forward is totally fine. I haven't heard many people complaining about that aspect of it. I think if they just kept if they kept the match history and all that other stuff that's already been public, and then they just wiped all of the back end kind of personal information, I don't know that that would ruffle too many feathers. So hopefully they come up with some kind of good way to handle it because there really are a lot of invested Magic players who don't want to see their entire history of playing the game just kind of vanish into memory, right? Into just being like, ah, who did I play in that 2010 GP? I don't remember, right? I guess it's one of those uh, rabbit holes where if you can't access it, you never know. But if you can, and I wanted to go find out whether or not you and I ever played a match of magic in the deep, deep past, I could look it up. So uh, people people like having access to things. They like having options. Hearing that things are going away is always a reduction in that. Makes people feel a little uncertain. I understand. Yeah, and it it just lends to this feeling that paper magic in general is getting deprecated by wizards which they're very adamant that it isn't but it certainly seems like as time goes on more and more they're just making more decisions that seem to be pointing in that direction at any rate for for us arena peeps we can move forward confidently with the knowledge that our platform is getting supported so why don't we switch to talking about some standard because I know that that's your jam. I know that's where you spend most of your time. And just just like a catch up on me, I've been the last two weeks, I've been feverishly playing limited. And that's basically just to fill out my collections, my preferred way of getting all the rares in the set. And it's also just fun for me to take a deep dive into each limited format and see what I feel about it. So I'll probably, at an episode here in the future, at some point, we'll probably release some of my thoughts on limited. But for for today, we're going to be focused mostly on standard. So I haven't been playing as much standard, but I've definitely been paying some attention. And I've hopped onto the ladder here and there recently just to get my toes into the water and feel it out but i know that you've been really really focused on it so what have your like what has your last week in standard been looking like well uh last week we talked a lot about certain companions and how they were changing things and the trend of companions dominating standard has only uh has only strengthened it's only become even more prevalent basically if you're opponent's deck doesn't have a companion you're at a pretty big advantage and people are learning more and more what cards they should be playing in this format that work better with their companions when you have this guaranteed card in your deck what cards should you play to maximize that card's efficiency so uh, a big development in obosh aggro decks has been heraldic banner Mm. so you play heraldic banner it gives plus one plus oh when you name say black to all your creatures that are black and now when you play obosh not only do you have an extra mana to play it early but all your creatures hit for twice as well four times as much in this in in the case of like a one power creature than they would have so like they they hit for one on their own when you play a banner that doubles it now they hit for two when you play obosh it doubles it again now they hit for four so that Changing output is so 
strong that a card like Heraldic Banner that's been mostly a joke in Standard for a while is now a key part of both Rakdos and Mono Black versions of the Obosh Aggro deck, which is, in my opinion at this point, strictly outclassing traditional aggro decks like Mono Red because it just, just has say, so much more power. It's it's like build your own tar brand basically. <laughs> yeah, but it's it it can be so much better than um tar brand because obviously tar brand is only red and it's only plus 2 whereas your mayhem devil hits for 8 if you control a heraldic banner and an obosh like your mayhem devil that normally doesn't even want to rumble it's a trained armadon it's a 3 mana 3/3. Three, three. Now it gets in the red zone and it does 8. <laughs> I mean that's nuts. It's pretty nasty. And if you've been whisper squatting it up in the early turns of the game, then you know, having like three or four four ones in play effectively when your Obosh comes down on turn four is pretty nasty. So Yes. Yeah. Uh the Whisper Squad, even more so than in the Luris deck where it was basically this resilient sacrifice fodder for a priest of the forgotten gods which was the main push in that deck now it's just this damage machine if your opponent can't sweep your board and you just go wide on whisper squad with a heraldic banner and an obosh you attack for so much damage that it's almost like it was its own self-contained army um pretty amazing yeah I I have actually been enjoying this deck. This is one of the few decks in standard I have actually played this past week was Aaron Barrick's version, which is just basically a super aggro list. It's playing stuff like the 4-5 Menace for three. She is always an expert on the um, aggro decks of any format, usually mono red, but uh, this time she turned her sights to the mono black and the heraldic banner. Uh, also just got to number one mythic if you saw the tweet. Yeah, I know. That's pretty awesome. So yeah, Aaron has been doing amazing work with this deck. Really, really impressive, to be honest. So I've been playing this deck a little bit, and it feels really good. I've been looking for a good mono black aggro list for a while. And any deck which runs a copy of Shadow Spear is really awesome in my book. Oh yeah, just to run it down really quick, because maybe not every... Some people might want to know what's in here. This is a hand-hating, hard-hitting, mono-black aggro deck uh, with Obosh as companion, so it can only have odd converted mana costs. And it has four Gutter Bones, four Knight of the Ebon Legion, four Serrated Scorpion, four Whisper Squad, two Duress, four Drillbit. So if the opponent takes damage, Drillbit is a one-drop. That is, for those of you counting at home, 22 plays for one mana. But wait, there's more. Once you get up to the three drops, four Rotting Regisaur, four Hunted Nightmare. This is the black, black, and one, so three mana, four, five Menace. That puts a Death Touch counter on one creature the opponent controls. So that's a card that hasn't had a home in Standard and just is here in this deck. Then there's four Heraldic Banners, two Murderous Riders, and then the lands are four Castle Lockthwain, 19 Swamp, and a Mobilized District. Which, you know, the funny thing about this deck is you look at that mobilized district and you think, oh, that's going to be free in my deck. And then you have those hands. There are just certain hands that you look down and you're actually like, oh, man, this is going to (laughs) suck. I I guess the triple, if you have all these black one drops, it could happen. But but it's just the one of, you know, it's just it's, it's the ninja. It is. And I actually think that the Whisper Squad is a key part of what makes that 
specific land more playable in your deck because even if you do have like a bunch of one drops in your hand the only way it punishes you is if you draw all like if you if your only one drops are your knight of the ebon legion or drill bit stuff like that so it, it can actually punish you but i think the whisper squad goes a long way towards kind of bailing you out of that so yeah have you played much with this deck just a little i played more with the rakdos deck had a good run with that. That felt almost too easy because I was on it pretty early and people were still used to the Luris version. And the Obosh version just hit so much harder. It's so much so much more punch. Um, so not as much with the Mono Black. Did you get to play it? Yeah, I've played a number of games with this deck. And I, you know, I have to say that my results with it haven't felt as decisively crushing as as Aaron has and so it could just be that I'm still learning the intricacies of the deck. I definitely think it's a very skill testing aggro deck. You you really have to plan out your mana usage all the way up until you deploy your obosh and it presents a, a massive number of decision trees. You have to decide, do I want to spend turn two whisper squatting? Do I want to spend turn two trying to get in damage and doing drill bitting? On turn three, do I just slam a rotting Regisaur and try to get the game over with? Or do I get my heraldic banner down? So there's a, a lot of... It, it is not like a turn them sideways and get the job done kind of an aggro deck when it comes to your game strategy so uh it could just be that i really need to learn the sequencing of the deck and learn how to deploy it in certain matchups yeah i wanted to ask how the hand hate cards like the two duress and the four drill bits were treating you and when you wanted to deploy them as opposed to threats it seems like it's probably a very um situational thing yeah, and it's actually one of those things where your opponent having a companion really helps out. So, like, for example, in the Fires matchup, you might actually want to deploy it earlier than you otherwise would have to see if your opponent has a deafening clarion. And that's that can be a really key thing. Um, in control matchups, you might wait a little bit longer to see if you can snipe an Elspeth Conquer's death or to prevent like one of the post Teferi plays that your opponent might have, maybe get a Shatter the Sky, something like that. So you might actually wait to deploy it. Or, or you know, if, if you think that your opponent's going to be trying to resolve a lot of early Planeswalkers, then you might just spend your early turns trying to, get, to go wide so that you can punish them for doing that. But yeah, I, I've actually always been a fan of Drillbit in these decks. I think that you can get it turned on consistently enough in a deck like this and a one mana like snag anything is pretty strong. Yeah, thought sees no downside, right? Yeah, it's, 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 exactly. It's, it's a modern pioneer staple. It's right. kind of amazing. Yeah, so it's it's really strong. The lack of exile does really hurt you. I just played a game recently where I did some amount of hand hating, and it just didn't matter because my opponent oroed me out and. Spoiler alert, Oro is just as good against this deck as it has been against any other aggro deck in the past. So there are definitely all times when I wish I was just running Agonizing Remorse, but you you just have to kind of, this is one of those decks where you've just got to jam and hope that you can get there by turn five or six and just try to get your opponent dead. 
And if a control deck or a Fires deck or one of these Yorion decks can stabilize against you, if they can get to more like turn seven or eight, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to win with this deck, even though you do have Castle Lockthwain, which is one of the big payoffs for playing Mono Black. So that's been kind of my experience of the deck is you really have to focus on getting the kill, especially while Obosh is on the board. Once your opponent removes Obosh, unless they've run out of resources, you know, like if the Elspeth Conquers Death comes down and removes your Obosh and they've got some action in the graveyard, you're probably not going to do very well the rest of that game. I look at this deck and I think that for, at least for ladder, right, uh, I play a lot of best of one. And the Shadow Spears are in the sideboard. And I'm thinking there's a lot of aggro in best of one. And I'm thinking Cat just blocks Regisaur. And that's yeah. frustrating. I really want the Shadow Spears in the main. Do you, would you be into that? Yes. So for best of one, I have been doing that. I definitely start with the Shadow Spears for that exact reason. And you also have these edge cases where your opponent slams a Dream Trawler. Or even in some cases it can make your opponent's life hard if they have a Thassa because you can actually kill it once it becomes a creature. So, um, yeah, I I 100% do run those in the main in best of one, for sure. Right on. On the, yeah, on the standard subject, that seems to be the aggro hotness, although Luris is still very common. That Best of one seems to move a little slower because when something happens on the on Twitch or a deck blows up on Twitter, it's usually the most kind of in the zone, in the know players who who adopt it quickly. And they are usually the ones who play best of three. So there's still a lot of Luris Rakdos on best of one, which is still a very good best of one deck, but is a little bit, I would say, underpowered compared to what Obosh is doing and what Yorian are doing. And, you know, to transition there, Yorian is the other, like, basically the control mage of the format is Yorian. Almost every deck that you would classify as some kind of a go-long game plan is a Yorian deck now. 80-card piles becoming all the rage. And then in the middle is Fires, where Karuga, you know, Karuga is the companion that draws cards for all of your non... all of your permanents other than Karuga, that are converted mana cost three or more. And in Fires, that thing's just a hand instant reload. So Karuga, Obosh, and Yorian, to me, are defining the format. And if the opponent isn't running one of those, they're either still playing last season's Mono Red, which I think is potent but at a disadvantage, or they're running Team of Reclamation, or some people are still running Mono White, but that's getting very rare. So uh, the Team of Reclamation is, can be tough, though. Uh, but that's like the way I'm seeing the ladder right now. That's that's my experience. Yeah. I I have to say that as time goes on, I respect these Yorion decks more and more. I think that card is just surprisingly potent. And I, I also think that that card is one of the things that really pushes a blue-white strategy over the top. Because I think what you would see in some of these blue-white decks is sometimes they would really struggle to to gain full control of the game. Maybe they would just, they'd be like one Elspeth conquers death too short, or Teferi would get dealt with one too many times, or they just wouldn't have a key blocker on the right turn, 
or if they were playing a deck which was able to outcard them, then sometimes they would just run out of gas. Yeah, their card advantage is medium, right? They don't yeah. have a, a one-mana light-up-the-stage type play. Refilling their hand is a little tricky, even thirst for meaning. You know, it requires that you discard an enchantment, which might be relevant, and uh, it requires them to fall behind on tempo, right? So, yeah, they just get in these spots where th maybe they're up a few cards, but the opponent pulls some Haymaker card that they just don't deal with and they die. Exactly. And I think one of the things that's easy to forget in a deck that doesn't run that many creatures is that creatures actually are a problem. Like, as a control deck, you do actually have to deal with creatures. And if you're going to win as a control deck, you have to deal with creatures in a card-advantageous way. And so many of the creatures in the current format bring their own card advantage. So even if you're drawing multiple cards, and even if you're killing multiple creatures with your Shatter of the Sky and the stuff, it's like if, if every creature that your opponent plays is netting them advantage, you're still going to fall behind eventually. And I think that that's one of the problems that Yarion solves really handily because you'll often see these decks wait to deploy their Yarion until pretty late into the game. And it's usually right at that point where in the past they would start to fall behind, where they would start to be like, okay, I'm now playing off the top of my deck or I'm now spending five mana a turn digging with my uh, with my blue castle, right? And so now instead what they can do is they can slam their Yorion and hopefully reset their Elspeth Conquer's death, maybe reset their Teferi or their Narset, get at least one more card out of that. And they usually have the um, the blue omen, the omen of the sea, at least one of those in play that they can reset. And so I think that Yorion just really pushes this deck over the top, and I think it really brings these blue-white strategies back into the forefront, whereas they were kind of lagging in the last season. So um, I've been very, very impressed with these Yorion decks, and frankly, they kind of <laughs> they have pushed me over the the fun edge, like. I used to feel like, okay, I can play these control matchups, like I can get there, my deck can do this. But I feel like when you've spent the entire game running the blue-white deck out of cards and they're finally at five life and you've finally got a board presence and they throw down Yorion and they gas back up, like that's the point where I just want to tap out and go to the next game. <laughs> oh no, don't, don't, don't do it. Don't throw it all away. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that is by design now and it's, it's kind of something interesting to talk about with these companions is the play pattern that you see because I think we all, when companions were revealed, were like, it's a cute option and the effects are decent. And I guess we just play this on, you know, this will be our turn five curve filler, right? We'll always have this nice turn five play. The play patterns with companions, the longer we play with them, the more it seems like the last person to play their companion wins. Mm, what I mean, yes. yeah, what I mean by that is once we understand the format and we have interaction that is meaningful in the format and our aggro decks have threats that are difficult to deal with in the format and these decks are bumping up against each other, it's almost a challenge of who can play their companion last. Because if you play your companion and it's answered and your opponent still has their companion, that, that last bullet in the chamber, you're going to get buried by it because Urian... Uh, Karuga, Luris, Obash, these are all like 
These are all huge game effects. Obosh is a little more predictable. If there's no damage on the board, it probably can't kill you by itself. But those other cards are card advantage plays. And if you're the last one with an unanswered card advantage play, then you should be way ahead in that game. Absolutely. And I think that the goal of a lot of these decks is to try to, like, they're trying to kill you before or or rest control of the game before they have to resolve their companion. Just like you said, they're trying to force you to use your answers on the stuff that's already on the board so that by the time you get that thing slammed, they finally can't answer it. And so, yeah, it, it is really part of the chess of the format is deciding, like, when when is resolving my companion going to put my opponent into such a tight spot that they can't come back from it? Because, like, I think the Loras deck is a really, really great example. That deck in particular really doesn't want to resolve Loras probably until the late game because in the very least, they want to be able to recoup value from it the turn they bring it down. And so that's often playing it on turn five or later. But... It's it's really also because a card like Loras can be quite easily answered that the deck has to really you you just have to really be thinking about like how am I going to maximize this card when it gets resolved and I think Obosh as well is is another good example because if you if you put down your Obosh and you don't win the game that turn and your opponent just Elspeth conquers deaths it next turn it's like you really have to look at your board state and say am I can I come back from this. Or if the opponent just sweeps the board next turn, do I have a strong follow-up? And often you don't. Yorion is an interesting one because I think that a lot of decks playing Yorion can get away with resolving it a little bit earlier because they usually have a very long game plan planned out. But I definitely agree Like for some of... And and I mean, it's the same like in a control mirror, like the first person who resolves Yorion is definitely behind, right? So... I think the same thing applies, but it just depends on the length of game that your deck is trying to play. Uh, sure. They, like, So one thing that's interesting about these control decks, and they're just leaning more and more into Yorion when they play it, so you see even more omens, and of course Elspeth conquers death. Um, and it's like the longer... Agent of Treachery is another good example, where it's like the longer you wait to resolve your Orion, the bigger it could be. But when you're playing Yorian against aggro, this turn five, where if you get even a little bit of a val- value out of it and have a four or five blocker is like a, a big corner turning moment for that deck where it's like now they're going to have a hard time breaking through. So it plays both roles really well, uh, just like you're saying. Yeah, really just a very, very strong card. And as we were talking about last week, the downsides of running an AT card deck uh, really minimized in this format. So I know that you had kind of a fun and dramatic finish to your season last month. And I wanted to make sure that we spoke about that. What happened with you and, and your ladder climb? For for the joy of the entertainment of others, I decided to make a YouTube video where I played the um, mythic ladder in best of one with Karuga fires during the last two hours of the season. So with the... Uh, with the time running down, so to speak. And let's see, I started around like, it was close to 99%, something like that. And it was very interesting because the swings that happened, there there were some games where I was like 1,000 
ish and I beat somebody else who was in the like 1000 ish and I moved like 20 spots, like, like 20 spots up. It was like, wow, that did hardly anything. And then the very next game I won and it was against somebody who was, I think even higher than me, something like 1200. And I jumped all the way up to 300, three, like wow. 340 in, in one win after doing <laughs> oh. like 20 spots, 10 minutes earlier. It, so people are, there's a lot of people like at higher ranks, like camping their rank, obviously. There's also a lot of people just playing, trying to secure a top 1200 because the stakes are that if you rank in the top 1200 at when the buzzer sounds, when the final buzzer goes off, then you get invited to the, you, you are allowed to participate in the events, the mythic invitational qualifiers. And then if you do really well in that, I believe it's nine and one or 10 and O, you know, easy, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, no worries. Man. Uh, if, yeah, you do well in that in best of three, then you get invited to a mythic invitational. If when those happen again, I'm sure they will happen again someday. I don't mean to spread uncertainty, but it's a path into the higher levels of competitive magic right now where there aren't many paths that are still open. So that is why people really try to finish in the top 1200 mythic at the end of a season. And I did it for the YouTube for the entertainment value. And it was indeed exciting. I was, I was playing matches ranked around like 600 something with 10 minutes to go, something like that. It's very, I don't know. I think it, it gets the uh, pulse pounding. It gets the juices flowing. It reminds me of the good old intense competitions of my past. I mean, it is pretty nail-biting because, like you said, one loss can just plummet you so far down. And I think this is, if you follow a number of highly ranked players on Twitter, you'll see there's a lot of angst towards the end of the season about, like, you know, people make these posts like, I'm ranked 60 and there's a day to go. Am I going to be okay? Or, if I go to sleep tonight and I wake up tomorrow, am I still going to be in the top 1200? And it really is kind of tough because the problem is you can't just, you don't necessarily want to just keep playing because if you lose, especially if you lose to a much lower ranked player, you might jump down a substantial amount, right? And so there's actually, you get to this point where you're not incentivized to keep playing, but you are incentivized to keep checking because as soon as you drop below that 1200, or even if you if it starts looking like you're moving down towards that, you're probably not going to maintain your top 1200. And so you have to actually get back on it. Yeah. And then it's, especially in best of one, it's like, Am I on the play? Do I do, do I get to be on the play? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so it's so agonizing right now and the decks are just so potent. So what were you and I think maybe you alluded to this earlier, but what were the main matchups that you were running into at the top of the ladder? So clearly the Karuga Fires deck is I don't know if it's too early to say that it's the best deck in the format. It's clearly one of the top competitive choices, especially by a lot of the pros, and clearly a deck that can just win any matchup anytime from any position. So what else were you running into a lot on that run? Well, I felt like the Mythic ladder was a pretty good tier list that day because if I face somebody like a 1,000 or higher, um or in the percentages, uh, 99, 98, et cetera, percent, it was most certainly that they were running some 
either Mono Red Aggro or Luris Aggro. Those were the two things I saw again and again. And it makes sense uh, in a way because they need wins. They need them quickly in that situation. So the more wins and the more opportunities, the more at-bats they get, the better for them. Time is not on their side. So playing something aggressive is good. That said, the Luris decks had a lot of cat oven stuff going on. So I'm also like, I mean, I know it's aggressive, but there's a lot of clicks you're doing here. Uh, So I played a lot of that. But every time I queued up against somebody in the top 500, it was... I. It was rarely Luris, you know, it was rarely aggro. It was very much Yorian. It was very much Karuga. Like that, those were almost uh, exclusively represented of the people I played above rank 500 was uh, these more powerful decks, these bigger strategies. And the person, I think I had a game with somebody who was ranked 40, 40? Yeah who was playing at that hour, which I was like, oh my gosh, you know, they're, they're, they're really, they're really going for it. So I played against somebody who was around rank 40, who had a a pretty epic, I think it was like a four color Yorian fires, just this massive Yorian pile in every sense of the word. It had so much going on and I got pretty lucky to pull off a tough victory there. Um, And yeah, so stuff like that. Any any time it was above 500, those are what I think the real decks of the format, like the best decks of the format are. I think aggro is a bit outclassed, even in best of one. I think it's beatable. And I think that Fires and Yorian are the, the heavy hitters at the moment. I think those are the, the cards to beat. Yeah, that's that's my sense too, is that, again, I keep saying this on the show, but if you're not thinking big, you're not thinking big enough in this current standard. And you know what showed up at the last minute, though? Mm. I'm just going to throw it in there because I forgot to mention it. Like the very last hour I started seeing this deck over and over was the cycling deck. Now, I want you to give your what you were going to say, but I had to remember to mention the cycling deck. Well, actually, I'm I'm really happy that you mentioned this because this is some of the hot news that's been going around this past week is that and people are actually memeing about this, talking about how the cycling deck is this deck that's like competitive in any format, right? Like you can sleeve up the same, whatever, like 40 cards and play them across many, many different formats. And this deck is actually competitive, which in a certain way is a little worrying to me. So, and it's, so it's, it's not just standard. This deck is dominant in limited. It's dominant, of course, in artisan because all of the strongest cards in the deck are commons and uncommons. And even oh, thank in all you. Them, I have an artisan deck now. There you go. <laughs> we can stop playing that format. I know. I've been wanting to dip my toe into it. There's so many formats, man. So much to keep up on. But people are even playing it in older formats too. So, like Flourishing Fox is seeing a fair amount of play in different formats. So. Um, this deck is, I'm going to throw it right out there. I'm not a huge fan of this deck. And, and I say that from the perspective of just that I don't particularly like the play patterns that are encouraged by just having a zillion one mana cyclers and a top end with Zenith flare. I, to me, it's not that it's not challenging magic. It's not that it's not magic that taxes you but i think 
it can be very difficult to interact with and it can be very frustrating to play against. And I think that it can create these very, very linear games, which basically come down to something like, can you counter the Zenith Flare? Yes or no. Can you somehow out-life gain the Zenith Flare? Yes or no. And if you if you don't have a satisfying answer to either of those questions, then you probably are just a dog to this deck. So what do you think about the play patterns and your experience playing with or against the deck? I've been lucky for the most part that people are still figuring this out because I can tell when I play against somebody who's good at cycling when they follow a a certain script. I'll get to it in just a second. But the games I played on Ladder with Fires, it looked really weird, but I would have these boards where they would have like Valiant Rescuer and three tokens and a fox that was like a 5-5. And my board has Karuga and Cavalier of Flame and another Cavalier of Flame and a Sphinx, like this massive board. And I'm like, and I'm talking to my, my YouTube videos. I'm like, I'm not attacking. I'm not attacking. Because if I take even a little bit of damage, every bit of damage I take is the Zenith Flare. You know, you're, you're just always... Also, if you attack into that board and they block with their Fox and they block with their Rescuer and those go to the graveyard, that that makes the Zenith Flare more potent, you know? So you always have to have this, am I going to get Zenith Flared? Am I going to get double Zenith Flared math? And when I'm playing fires against them, it's like I'm almost I'm almost never attacking until I have a Kenrith, so I can have Trample, and I can gain a ton of life. And I'm always also digging for Clarion. Not necessarily, like sometimes I sweep their board, but mostly it's for the lifelink. Like I'm trying to out-life gain play patterns around double Zenith Flare with my deck that is full of six fives. It... (laughs) It's kind of wild, and it is very repetitive. The second you see that first card cycle or that fox resolve on turn one, it's like, here we go. Now, here's the thing that most people, I think, are doing wrong. So I'm, we give this away, right? Now everybody's going to do it right who listens to this podcast. We're all about value for the for the listeners, but we're going to be lamenting this when people figure it out. So if you are playing the cycling deck and your opponent is not putting pressure on you, people play this like a beatdown deck pretty often. They go like Fox, Valiant Rescuer, Stinger. You know, they play Healer. They play out their threats and try to get value from cycling with their threats on the battlefield. Makes sense, right? Pretty normal. If the if your opponent is not pressuring you, like they're not attacking you very well, and they don't have counter magic in their deck, the right play is just to cycle. Because you will eventually hit your Zenith Flares and they will die. And if they're not pressuring you tremendously, the life gain from the Zenith Flare will keep you out of range. All you have to do is find two Zenith Flares. The end. And if you cast your creatures, like you cast that fox and you cast that rescuer, then the opponent can interact with them. They'll have a removal spell or something like that. And you won't be a card deeper in your deck to the flare. But people who figure that out, oh, my opponent's not playing counters and they're not trying to attack me right away. All they do is cycle every single piece until they double flare you. And there's no interaction. There's absolutely nothing that happens other than flare hitting face. Yeah. And I I like that you highlight the double flare is really important. I think there are a number of things about this card which could have been tweaked to make it a bit fairer to play against. I think the fact that it's an instant is one of the hardest aspects of it because what it allows someone to do is end of your turn flare you, beginning of their next turn flare you. And which is, it's not winning on the same turn but it's kind of like it 
right? It's kind of like they just resolve two flares on the same turn and you're dead. I think that if Zenith Flare had been a sorcery, it would have made for some much more interesting play patterns because then you'd have an entire other turn to recover and do other things. Oh yeah, the I mean, I'm sure you've been there. You attack for what you hope is lethal and Zenith Flare blow out mid-combat. Ugh. Yep. Ugh. It's... It's nasty. I mean, that card just, it has so many uses. It has so many options. The life gain is an incredibly relevant part of that card. The being able to go to the face is an incredibly relevant part of that card. So yeah, I think in retrospect, that's a card which could have been better balanced to make it, you know, still a very potent card, but not necessarily just this I win button that it tends to be in these decks. So I agree. Now, what do you think? Here's something that I haven't really thought too deeply on, but like, how do these decks deal with the black ley line? <laughs> that, <laughs> Is that well, just game over for them? It can be, yes. Uh, in best of one, for sure. In sideboard games, there has to be some level of ways to deal with that. Um, yeah. there, obviously, it's white. There's a lot of options. I think there's one white that Puts a gives a creature plus one plus one gains four life or destroys target enchantment. That's an right. option that you can so they play. Bring those in. You can yeah. play disenchant, of course. Uh, Heliod's intervention is a card if you're worried about them hitting multiples. So sideboard the sideboard shuffle is interesting mm-hmm. and uh, indeed uh, a turn one ley line makes it really hard for you to win with zenith flare. Mm-hmm. Your your fox plan became the plan, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's a really good point, is that it is a deck that can pivot, and so that that is nice. Like, sometimes they do just beat you down with, like, two seven seven foxes, and you just can't deal with them, right? Or sometimes they go wide, and they make a bunch of tokens, and they can eventually get you that way. So it is a deck with a lot of play. I also want to say, for for anyone listening to this cast who is newer to the game or just like doesn't have that many wild cards etc etc i would definitely recommend building this it's a hundred percent the most competitive deck on arena per the wild cards that you can build so if you have a handful of wild cards and you're looking for a deck i would basically invest in some good dual lands and then or I, I don't actually know what the mana bases of these decks really look like, but I would invest in the res that it takes to, to play the lands because all of the rest of the cards in the deck are basically common and uncommon, and you can just get away with it. You can run it as Boros. You right. can run it very well as Boros. So all you need are like three Sacred Foundries Yeah. because you get one, uh, I think, when you get your account. So Yeah, exactly. And the cycling helps you find those lands that you might need as well. So. Yeah, I think that I I like that they do this. It's kind of like the Gates deck that they had in the Allegiance meta is having these standard playable competitive decks that are really resting on the commons and uncommons. I think it it gives a lot of access. So definitely highly recommended for anyone in that category. Can I can I get can I rant though for a second? Can I just get angry about something though? Oh, oh, lay it on us. Okay. Okay. They built. They finally did it. They built like kind of the ultimate budget deck. It's like all commons and uncommons, and it's kind of sweet in a way. But for new players, it doesn't feel like magic. It's like the least interactive deck if played properly, like in forever. <laughs> Especially on a budget. 
I mean, if you have a turn one fox and you make it freaking huge, you attack with it a bunch of times and you win. Yay. Or you just cycle everything in Zenith Flare the Face and you win. It, it, it's like you don't learn. It doesn't feel like real magic. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it feels it's like, not they, it's like solitaire. It's solitaire. Yeah, it's not the most beginner friendly in terms of actually making you a better magic player, especially if you get used to the idea that this is what magic is. <laughs> because even for a combo deck, it's attacking on a very weird axis that a lot of other combo decks don't. And so, yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think that it sets kind of a weird precedent. I think that one mana colorless cyclers in general set kind of a weird precedent. I'm not super happy to see those here. So I, I totally agree with you. And and if you had been playing much limited, which I know you hardly do, you would also understand the utter dominance of this deck in the draft format as well. And that's a place where it just feels especially unfair and busted because you know, if it's hard to interact with in standard where you're playing with the best cards, it's ultra hard to interact with in limited when you're not. So yeah, I I agree. I'm not stoked about it. It's one of the things that is probably going to make me retire Ikoria as a draft format sooner than I otherwise would have because it's pretty sweet. Ikoria is a sweet draft format and the the sheer prevalence and dominance of this deck in it is basically just uh, it's bad news man it's shall we say a buzzkill uh, yeah <laughs> so, i understand that yeah rant accepted so we're getting close to the end of the episode here you, you are gonna tell me about a couple of events here and we wanted to introduce a segment which is going to happen periodically on this show which is da 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 gas or ass so Here's what's going to happen is CGV is going to present me with some different magic events that have been announced recently, and I'm going to rate whether they are, in fact, gas and wonderful, or whether they are ass and terrible. So CGV, what do you have for me here? Okay, a few warm-ups before we get into the ones that I believe were announced. It's really hard to find this information, but on Weekly MTG, they announced some upcoming events for Arena. So I'm just going to throw you a couple of these, and I want your take. Arjuna, is Historic Artisan gas or ass? Oh, I'm I'm 100% gas for Historic Artisan. I want for Artisan to be a prevalent format on Arena, and I think that the wealth of commons and uncommons in Historic is exciting. I also think that Historic is currently dominated by a bunch of really unfun, rare cards from all of the previous sets. So yeah, uh, Historic Artisan, total gas, 100%. It feels like classic magic, right? Yeah. To me, it feels like more of a possibility of attacking, countering spells. <laughs> Card advantage. Math. Yeah. I mean, who knew? These are fun, nostalgic aspects of playing Magic that we really used to enjoy, right? Yeah, I, I agree with that. All right. This one, this is a true personality test if ever I've seen one. Okay. All right. Lay it on me. Gas or ass? Momir. Momia. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely going to have to give Momia an ass. Um, yes. We can still I'm, be friends. <laughs> yes. I'm just not a fan, man. Okay. So here's the deal. I love that Momia exists. 
I want for people to be able to play as many different kinds of magic as they want to. So I'm 100%. So, so the variety as a whole is total gas. Have at it, have fun. But for me, I cannot get down with Momia. Yeah, I, I can't stress enough also. If you enjoy these things, we can still be friends. It's okay. This is... <laughs> Uh, okay. Variety and magic is a good thing, but Momir is ass, and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> end of end of discussion. All right. What well, what's the next one you got for me? Omniscience draft, ass or gas? Oh, okay. Hmm. This is a tough one. This so you get an omniscience emblem to start every game. Mm-hmm. So all your spells are free. Okay. Well, you know this segment doesn't lend itself well to milk toasty kind of wishy-washy answers but i have to say that this is the one where i'm the most on the fence i'm going to go with gas because i i think that that's fun i think that it encourages you to pick just like a bunch of redonkulous top endy kind of crazy limited cards that you otherwise wouldn't resolve a bunch of like seven sevens for seven and wacky card draw spells and stuff so even though i've never myself done an omniscience draft i'm gonna come down on the side of gas i just want to i believe it was um amazonian who submitted it as her event for arena i believe that's true so i think it was a great idea because it's kind of like you're playing a combo deck that goes off on turn one but uh, totally it's still limited so i can't i can't endorse (laughs) so so it's just categorically ass for you then (laughs) yep (laughs) by definition (laughs) yep all right are you ready for some of the new ones that are coming okay yeah lay lay the real deal on me man what's happening all right gas or ass historic cube with other humans oh okay historic cube with other humans okay so it's draft instead of sealed this time yeah this is this is like if there were a tier above gas that's where i would put this one this is jet fuel is is what this format is for me i have been wanting to cube draft so hard on arena basically since the beginning now so so here's the thing about cube Cube has been a really popular format on Magic Online forever. And I've always wanted to cube. But the thing is, I am A, not super invested in Magic Online. And B, I just don't really know a lot of the cards and a lot of the archetypes and a lot of the interactions. And frankly, I just haven't really felt motivated to learn them. So for me, this historic cube human draft format is the exact pinnacle of what I would want Cube to be because I know what the cards are. I'm used to playing with them. I'm used to playing with them on Arena. And yet it's going to be that sweet, over-the-top kind of Cube experience. And I had a heck of a blast playing even the sealed historic format when they released it last month. So 100% windmill slam gas for me. Cool. Still limited, so I'm just going to move along. So. <laughs> you don't need my opinion. <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, it is the close... Like, I saw some of these cube decks, and it looked almost like people were playing Singleton because they were so powerful. So, I mean, I don't know. It, I, it sounds I cool. I would guess, CGB, that if you were to jump into the limited arena, this might be your favorite way to do it. 
don't 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 do that don't don't give hope don't <laughs> don't don't start the viewers that if you rev them up they'll never stop they'll never they'll never stop all right so we we will rest in peace on this particular <laughs> point all right here here comes a good one we're gonna unveil this a piece at a time i almost feel like the individual pieces could be rated in the gas or ass category so it's an event where at the beginning of every turn you get another treasure so they've done this before so you have an emblem where you get a treasure which is you can sacrifice for one man of any color at the start of every turn all right and remind me this this is a constructed event right mm, yeah it's constructed yeah so it's monster themed so whatever that means and then there's the pre-constructed decks Oh. To be specific, a pre-constructed deck. One deck. So every player plays one deck? The same deck that somebody else built. 60 cards, I believe. Actually, I'm not sure about that. They did do a pre-construct that was like 100-some cards a while ago. So it might not be 60 cards. Take that back. But yes, everybody has access to one pre-constructed deck. And they get a treasure at the start of each turn. You know, off the top of the dome, I'm going to have to call this one ass. Uh, you, I was somewhat interested until the whole everyone plays the same deck thing happened. I think even if they were 100-card singleton decks, like even if this was like some weird version of Commander without a Commander, but where you get treasure and you just resolve a lot of big beasts, like... That format sounds fun to me, but not if everyone's rocking the same thing. It's just hard for me to imagine that being particularly a good time. I think that they got close to doing this right when they did the, it was the Theros Beyond Death kind of pre-release, right? It was three weeks before Theros Beyond Death came out. I believe this is how it worked. You'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. And it, had, it was, there were two decks that you could choose from, an Ashiok deck and an Elspeth deck. So it had like five or six new cards that we had never seen mm, before that had just right. been spoiled in each deck. I and it that. had it had like the power nine throwback cards as well in yes. these decks. Black Lotus, <laughs> Ancestral Recall, you know. The joke was that it turns out Elspeth is really good on turn one, you know. Uh, yeah, which is probably the only turn it's good on, right? <laughs> right. So I think that that was close to them doing this right, because yeah. you get an experience you can't get any other way. Most of us have never played a Black Lotus, sacrificed it for mana, and done obs- and cast Ancestral Recall, and had a crazy turn like that in our lives. So the opportunity to do that while also seeing some new cards and new mechanics from the new set, like all of that combined was close to good. And I say close because it still wasn't good (laughs) because (laughs) you played it once and then it was like the queue time. If you played Ashiok, you would just time out. You couldn't even get a game because everybody was playing the Ashiok deck. It had freaking (laughs) Ancestral Recall. Who's going to play Mono White when you could play Blue Black with Ancestral Recall? Yeah. And so yeah, the queue they... times were terrible, and the experience was very low-powered. Like, the cards that were revealed outside of those two Planeswalkers were not very strong. Mm, so, okay. so they, they so almost it... had it, and it was, it was not good. And this 
this does not look like them fixing it to me. Yeah, that previous format to me sounds like a gas idea with an ass implementation. Exactly. But, but I, I think, yeah, this particular format, again, sight unseen, I'm just going to call it unmitig unmitigated ass. All right, that that is this week's gas or ass with Arjuna segment. Excellent, excellent. So if you guys enjoyed this segment, I would actually like to hear uh, uh, in, in our feedback section in the Discord, let us know whether this segment was in fact gas or ass. And we'll just be paying attention moving forward. And we want to provide the content that you want to hear. And like CGB said, a little bit of the content that you didn't know that you wanted to hear. So yeah, let us know. And CGB, I'm super stoked to have you on this show. I've just, you know, you're one of my favorite guests that I've had on this show. And I love the idea of you returning week after week to discuss more magic with me. I love being here, man. Awesome. All right. So uh, real quick, where can people find you online, CGB? You can find me on the Twitter, on the Twitch, on the YouTube at just Covert Go Blue. One word. Covert Go Blue. One word on all those places. Th three words turned into one word. How three complicated one could it be? <laughs> three single, one individual, triple words. No problem. You call me CGB, though. You, anybody, anywhere, when you're talking to me, referring to me, commenting, adding me, you can call me CGB. It's fine. Or, or if you're having a lot of fun, CGBG. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Meanwhile, you can find this podcast at ArenaCraft Pod. That's on Twitter. Um, I've actually changed it to ArenaCraft Podcast on the Twitch just for the advertising purposes. You can find us ArenaCraft Podcast on YouTube. You can join our banging Discord server by looking in the show notes. And yeah, thank you guys all so much. Uh, we will be starting a fresh contest giveaway this month. So following us on all of those places or even just one of them can put you in the running. Thanks very much. And we will catch you next week. Yeah.